I got the shotgun. We got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? What's going on, y'all? This is Method Man, and this is The Wire at 20. Today, we're going to talk about someone who's close to my heart, who's close to all of our hearts, Michael K. Williams, who played the renegade stick-up man Omar Little. It's going to get a little heavy in here, y'all, but we're going to make it celebratory. Mike brought so much joy to the world before passing away tragically last year at the age of 54. Losing him was hard. I mean, he came from where I came from, and to see someone like me make it, truly inspiring. He will be missed. I bet a ton of Omar quotes come to mind when you think of The Wire. Hey, yo, lesson here, babe. You come at the king, you best not miss. A man got to have a coat. This range and this caliber? Even if I miss, I can't miss. Look, at my game, you take some care and you play the safest way you can. But it ain't about no hiding forever. And frankly, you've been in as long as me, you can do the thing on your name. All in the game, yo. <laughs> All in the game. <laughs> but before he was Omar, Mike was just an actor from Brooklyn looking to book a gig. He got his start in the entertainment industry as a background dancer and choreographer inspired by the vision of Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. Mike's first acting role was in the film Bullet alongside Tupac. He got the job because Pac himself saw a Polaroid of him and insisted that he be cast. Within a few years, he landed roles in Martin Scorsese's Bringing Out the Dead and The Sopranos. When I talked to Hassan Johnson, who played Wee Bay, about that era, he remembered running into Mike around town. As far as Mike, we used to always see each other at auditions. It was a plenty of those days at these auditions, grinding, 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 just talking about someday we'll be there, someday we'll be there. And then after that, it, it was just, you know, snowball effect. I was so happy when he got on the wire because I remember it was, I think, the third episode, first season. And I read the script. I said, oh, whoever they cast for this, man, I said it. And then I told Mike that. Mike just looked at me because Mike will always look at, when you compliment Mike, he be blushing and shit. Like, he didn't know how to take those compliments. But he was like, I hear you, Haas, good looking. I was like, no, I'm telling you, bro, you got this. Just do what you got to do. You good. Andre Royal remembered those early days, too. I had seen him in a, in a movie, an indie movie called Mugshot. I don't know if anybody ever saw this. I don't even know. He don't even talk about it. Like, it was one of those VHS, you know, movies that I saw. And I thought he was great in it. I thought he was so vulnerable. Mike auditioned for casting director Alexa Fogel while she was working on the TV show Oz. So when Alexa was casting for The Wire, he came to mind. A lot of that had to do with his scar, which came from catching a razor blade to the face during a barroom brawl on his 25th birthday. I went through certain notes that I had of characters I had cast before and one of those was on Oz and I couldn't remember his name. I do remember that, but I do know that in my notes I would have written that he had that scar. And I, you know, I mean, the thing that's interesting about that too is that Michael is a very much a New Yorker and we were very conscious of trying to 
to make sure that that didn't come through with these characters. But, you know, he, I knew that he had been a dancer and that he had a kind of beautiful calm about him. When you have skill in other areas, it's, it can very often be a, a plus. After Mike got the role, the producer still had, you know, some reservations. He might have looked hard, but he was far from it in real life. A few years back, David Simon told the New York Times, Mike is a beautiful man, but a gangster, he is not. And that's part of what made him so great as Omar. Mike was such a natural that he eliminated any doubt as soon as the camera started rolling. Here's what Ed Burns remembers about his very first scene. Michael was very humble, very quiet. We picked him because everybody else just didn't work. And he did have a scar, which helped. His first scene on set was the love scene in the little room he was staying in with the shotgun. And um, I was with him, and the prop master came up with a little sawed-off shotgun and handed it to Michael. And Michael looks around, and, and, he, and the prop master is walking away, and he, he says, hey, excuse, excuse me, sir, sir, <laughs> how do you open this? And I thought, wow, <laughs> this character's not going to last. <laughs> so I showed him how to open it, and the director calls him in, and you would have thought that when Michael was a baby, his mom put a shotgun in the, in the crib with him. That's how easy he was with this weapon. I had no idea what he would bring to that character. His ability to inhabit the character and to bring, bring comedy to it, bring seriousness to it, to bring that look to it, it was astonishing. And it was also astonishing to see him become Omar without any twisting of his face or anything like that. It's almost like you pass through a veil. He was just all of a sudden, Omar. I mean, after, after that scene and just the way he handled himself, you knew he was going to be around. He left his mark on people in real life, just like he did on screen. We talked to Idris Elba, who played Stringer Bell, about his first time meeting Michael. One of our first days shooting in that location. I can't remember exactly, but I remember meeting this guy, Michael, what's up, man? How you feeling good? I remember thinking that he was uh, West African, and I think I even asked him that. I was like, yo, man, you're Scar, bro. Is that is that like some West African? He was like, nah, man, that's some hood shit. I was like, ah, oh, we talked, actually we talked about knife crime in the UK, because he's like, yeah, I know some people out there, and they tell me this is what they do out there. They they give you smileys, I think they, that's what we talked about, that's what they call it out here, give you a smiler. He just look the part, you know what I mean? Mind you, you know, everyone that was cast in The Wire in that time, the casting director was under strict direction to make sure everyone feels authentic. Everyone has to be authentic. And when I met Michael, I was like, damn, they really got some dude from from the streets, you know what I mean? Not that he was trying to be a thug or anything, he was just, just looked apart 100%. And then when I, I can't remember the first scene we did together, but he's a dope actor. Like, a good actor is always someone that, first of all, you know your words, you're open to throwing it at many different ways. Sometimes you get an actor who just has a preconceived way of doing it, and they're gonna do it that way, no matter how many takes they do. 
but with Michael, you come in and he might do it this way and then he'll do it a different way. And I love that because I, I, that's the kind of way I like to work. So it was really great fun working with him. Mike brought a quiet intensity to his breakout role. The mere thought of Omar terrified people. I mean, he could dominate scenes by simply staring you down. His stare cut even deeper than his words. And that presence is a huge part of why Omar became one of the most fascinating characters in the history of television. I mean, this is a character who HBO executives asked David to cut out of an early script. Are you serious? Omar was also distinct because he was openly gay. From his first scenes, you see him alongside his boyfriend, Brandon. Don't nobody want to hear them dirty words, man. Especially coming from such a beautiful mouth. You can feel how much he loves him through his displays of affection, and Omar's passion for his lovers is a constant theme throughout The Wire. A character with those particular layers felt like a, a rarity, but Omar brought new depth to how masculinity was perceived and discussed at the time. Andre Royo, J.D. Williams, and Wendell Pierce talked about that. The character he played, you know, back in our day, it was very scary also because you just felt like any actor dealing with the homosexuality in our, in our culture back then was was kind of taboo. But you get you get clowned, you get screamed on, you get called sellout, or you might not even work again because people won't buy you in any other role if they see you kissing on a man. And we, I think, our culture was so so protective of our manhood that we didn't want to see anything like that. I watched my neighborhood the first couple of episodes when he showed up and how the hood was like, that's my man, I'm Omar, I'm the baddest motherfucker, you know, they loved him. They thought he was the toughest and the hardest dude. And then he kisses the man. And those same guys that were like, that's my man, blah, 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 they got caught. They had to check themselves and be like, that's not your man no more. He ain't tough no more. And I saw people go, no, no, that's cool. No, no, he's still the toughest guy. And I saw people change their conviction about what they felt about a certain gender or race that they didn't think before. We had a term for them, homo thugs. We knew they existed. We never thought we'd see one on camera. We never thought we would see one displayed on screen. And he didn't care. Like He just was like, I got this part and I'm gonna do justice to this part. And he never thought about backlash. He never thought about uh, image. He was just playing this character. Well, I mean, if I could say this, I'm gonna say this the most tactful way I could say it. He brought like this openness that a lot of people wouldn't be able to share. You know what I'm saying? A lot of actors wouldn't be able to pull that off. And, and he did that with everything he was in. And that's what I think no one else could have could have duplicated that the way he did. Somebody could have read what was on the page and you know, they would have had their own rendition of Omar. But what we got of that Omar, I think that it wouldn't have been the same had it been anybody else. Nobody could have felt and emoted Omar the way he did. Like just saying a O and D, you know, pulling that out. Like it was this this sensitivity, this pain, this ruthlessness, and this intelligence that he he brought to it. Being a fully realized gay character, he completed the whole the whole package, the whole circle. There's certain people on screen. And it, it, I don't know if it's anything you can teach, 
or if it's just innately in you. But there's certain actors on screen that when they cry, you cry. I don't give a fuck if it's a close-up or music behind you. They don't need all that. But when they angry, you angry. When they cry, you cry. And Michael was one of those dudes that was, he was so open and expressive and fearless about his emotion. He wore it on his sleeve. We didn't really see that much of that in our culture on screen. We didn't see that. I mean, he embodied uh, a certain inner strength. For us, Black people, with strength was big, muscle, tough, not teary-eyed, not crying, not being, you know, sensitive to a fellow guy or girl or what have you. I mean, the scenes with him holding the little kids, his code, a lot of that Michael already embodied. He was the kindest, most loving person. Complete opposite of any sort of Omar. But, you know, at the same time, you saw that part of Omar. You can see that in Michael, and it came through in Omar that made him such a beloved character. He can't be that homicidal and be beloved by so many people unless there was a humanity you saw in him, this love, this kindness. You saw it. On setting off, Mike was a joy to be around. Facts. A gregarious guy. A socializer. Here's Hassan again. It's like Mike understood your plight. He cared about how you felt, what you going through at the time. He was just a magnet like that, just a people magnet. Especially the the people, right, in the community. Like, he loved the community. Like, the people, like, you would have thought Mike was from Baltimore, not Brooklyn. Yeah, like, I'm talking out the gate. Like, the gravitation to the people that Mike had, yeah. When we were talking to cast and crew members about him, we heard again and again. The stare was intimidating. But once you got to know him, you learned quickly that he was kind, sensitive, and looked out for his people. He was like one of those people that is the ultimate people person. And he one of those people, like, if he was just sitting across staring at you, you wouldn't think he was a people person. But then the second he, as soon as he started talking to you, as soon as he smiled at you, you're like, oh, oh. Not that I'm naturally intimidated, but some people you just think they ain't going to talk to you or... They got something on their mind or they always off to do something or whatever the case is. But yeah, once Mike talked to you, yeah, he was open. The first thing I remember about me and Michael K. Williams is us being in a club. That's the first thing I remember. But me and him started hanging out a lot because he was a people person like nobody else. So like he started exploring Baltimore just as much as me. Like we're running into each other like out like type of thing, you know. Or just call each other and go out somewhere, be like, oh, here, let's go to, let's try this one out, Club One, or let's try this Hammer Jacks out, or whatever it is. You want to hear an actor complain? Give him a job. He'll find something to complain about. The trailer's too small. What, what, what's going on? You know, and then you got somebody like Michael, and it's all beautiful. There's no, there's no downside. This is all make believe. He had that energy that he embraced all of it. And he wasn't scared of any of it. He wanted to do a good job. As long as they say that he did a good job, he embraced it. Producer Karen Thorson told us a story which really illuminated this. I do remember seeing him at the premiere of the first season. And I remember a phone call two nights before to David and Ina saying, does Michael know that he's not in the premiere? Because he was not in the first two episodes. And they're, they're like, thank you for telling me. Because, you know, you wouldn't want him to show up expecting to see himself. 
They had moved his scene later. It had been shot earlier, but it got moved later. But, you know, when you go with expectation and you're like, what happened? So I remember the premiere very specifically because of that. Of course, he was delightful and charming, and it did not ruffle his feathers one bit. He was just very approachable. Ed Burns had a similar memory. We, we had a director who was sick, coughing and stuff like that. And Michael went out, went to a pharmacy, got a whole bunch of different things, brought it back and gave it to the director so the director would be all right. That's Michael. Among Omar's most memorable scenes were his conversations with Bunk, played by Wendell Pierce. Bunk and Omar, the characters, went way back, like Larry David's hairline back. They went to high school together and knew the same people growing up. They represented divergent paths that people in similar situations can take if only a few things occur, one way or another. Wendell remembered shooting those scenes very well. The one thing I hate about David <laughs> is he does not like to share any of the story arc with the actors ahead of time. And I keep telling him that's disrespectful to actors. And he goes, no, I know if I ever let you see what you're about to do or you're going to ham it up and give it away three episodes prior. And I said, no, actors know where the edge of the stage is and they never walk off of it. So we can know where the story is going without giving it away. I was complaining, literally, at base camp in my chair because that season I was chasing a gun. Let me just grand jury my man here, lock in the story. Now for the gun, later for his story. And that's your sergeant talking. A gun that was very important, evidence. And I'm bitching and complaining, and I'm literally talking to other actors about, man, I've done all this research, I know what it's about. We need to delve into all kinds of stories about why these black officers became police, you know? This doesn't represent their community, they wanna take care of the good people in the community. We never tell the stories about what community is and how it's made up of all of them and how we have checks and balances within the community. And I remember my girlfriend's father was saying when he was growing up in, you know, in Oklahoma, man, racism and segregation was so bad, they knew only a few cats would make it out. And his father was the principal, and his father before that, in the 1800s, had gone to Tuskegee and stuff. So if the thugs saw him at a party, they were like, no, schoolboy, you don't belong here. And they would send him home. They even, the thugs even had a sense of community. Right? And George Pelicano said, Wendell, I hear you. I think I can tell you now. The gun is going to lead you to Omar. That's why you're chasing this gun. That very discussion that you're talking about is what we're going to deal with. That you're going to remind him of the fact that he's a part of the community. And I said, oh, man, yeah. He said, but I'm glad you did all that research. And let me ask you, can I use some of that? I said, absolutely. And that's a famous scene between Omar and Bunk on the bench. It's one of the proudest moments I have in The Wire. It is my favorite scene. As rough as that neighborhood could be, we had us a community. Nobody, no victim who didn't matter. And now all we got is bodies and predatory motherfuckers like you. And out where that girl fell, I saw kids acting like Omar, calling you by name, glorifying your ass. 
Makes me sick, motherfucker, how far we done fell. What's so great about it is the antagonism between Bunk and Omar was actually heightened by the love Michael and I have for each other. You were able to go there because, oh, you, you were playing with someone who was going to be able to give it back to you, back and forth. And it was the, some of the best acting I've done in my career, not only on The Wire, in my career, in my career. It's a high water mark. And just right at the end of it, it shows you how connected we are. We had done the scene, the meat of the scene is done, and we just need to get a pickup of me walking away. And as I'm walking away, Michael spits. Spits, really, was, he wanted to spit on me. He was spitting at the idea of what I was talking about and all. And man, just with a sense of memory, it was not even planned. Oh, I turned around. Because I, I felt it. I was, I was 10 feet, 15, 20 feet away. He spat, and I was like, how dare you spit? And turned around. And that moment is so impulsive. So I always tell people, watch that moment. At the end of the scene, I'm walking away. I heard him spit. I, at one point, I was like, should I run back? Do, am I going to run back and hit this cat? Oh. And he's like, cut. And we both were like, oh, that was nice, man. As one of the all-time great TV characters, Omar made an impact on a variety of people. It turns out that he had an admirer in a very high place, the White House. At the front end, I got to tell you, uh, I'm a huge fan of The Wire. I think it's one of the uh, greatest, uh, not just television shows, but pieces of art uh, uh, in the last uh, couple of decades. I, I was a huge fan of it. You know that voice. That's former President Barack Obama. I get to call him Barry personally. In conversation with David Simon back in 2015. And guess which character he singles out? I'll give you a hint. It ain't cheese. Omar's, by the way, my favorite character. Uh, that was the on, part. On I was worried show. about that when you said it. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you a little secret about Mike. You know how Omar whistles that tune when he's coming around? Farmer in the Dell? Producer Karen Thorson gave us some background info about that. Well, I can tell you, he couldn't whistle. We uh, dubbed all his whistling, believe it or not. Maybe I shouldn't reveal that. I got a grandbaby now, so this song is playing in the background while he's watching his little uh, baby teach me moments, and they're singing this song. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell, hi on the farmer in the dell. And then there's a part that says, the cheese stands alone. In that song, and I never knew that that's what he was referencing. She stands alone. The whistle was how Omar announced himself. And now it's so famous that the Baltimore Ravens paid tribute to Mike last year by playing a clip of Omar whistling during their home opener at Baltimore's M&T Bates Stadium. It's just another example of how both Mike and Omar will live on through the years. As a character, Omar might have felt like some mythical figure, but he was actually based on real-life stick-up men who Ed Burns encountered in Baltimore. I had like four or five guys who were gunslingers who I worked with as far as I got them with guns. <laughs> I took them to the state's attorney. We took that to the judge. The judge put them back out on the street. 
You go back out on the street, you can't kill anybody, and you feed us information. Because you're not going to get information from any other way, right? It's as simple until you get a wiretap. And even then, you know, it's not as good as when you, if you have really good information coming. So we blended a couple of the characters I knew. And one of the characters I knew was very soft-spoken. And he never cursed. And we thought, well, let's make him gay. The biggest influence for Omar was Donnie Andrews, who robbed drug dealers in West Baltimore during the 70s and 80s. Remember when Omar jumped off a balcony to save his life in season five? Donnie Andrews said that actually happened to him, only he jumped from higher up. His conscience eventually got the best of him now. He turned himself in to Ed Burns, who was working as a detective at the time. Donnie was sentenced to life in prison, and while he was in prison, he started to turn his life around. David and Ed, along with the federal prosecutor involved with Andrews' case, and Donnie's eventual wife, Miss Fran Boyd, all lobbied for Donnie's early release. He was released from prison in 2005 and became a great help on the wire. He worked as a consultant and even appeared as one of Omar's allies during seasons four and five. Sadly, Donnie passed away from complications during emergency heart surgery in 2012. He was 58. His wife, Ms. Fran, was the inspiration for a character on The Corner. She also had cameos in both The Corner and The Wire. Drop one, get one. Drop one, get one. Fran remained part of The Wire family until she also passed away in May of this year at the age of 55. They'll both be missed. Here's David. God, I miss Fran already. But Fran, in the corner, when her character, played by Candy Alexander, comes in, she thinks she has a bed waiting at a Baltimore Recovery Center. And instead, she encounters the real Fran Boyd, who's sitting behind the desk as the intake worker, and who has to tell her, "There's we have no bed. And I don't know why you thought you had one reserved, but you know we're full up. And she has to go back and sit in... The do drop in and, you know, realize she's probably going to get high at the end of the night because she's, she doesn't have a detox bed. And so I gave Fran that role because, I, like, I was with Fran that day that that happened to Fran. She'd had her last party the night before, and now she was going to go in and dry out and try to get clean. I walked her up there, and, um, and her mistake, she did not have the bed. And I watched her go back and, and break down. So to recreate that scene even as attenuated as it is, and to have Fran there for the fictional Fran, I thought it would mean something to Fran. And like, instead of just putting her in background and giving her a line as a shop clerk or something, it, it felt like you could speak to Fran's journey and how far by that time she had come, by that time she was clean. And she was in the process of rescuing a, a whole lot of her extended family in terms of the kids and nieces and nephews and everything. The Wire family looks out for each other. That's a fact. That's why you continue to see an outpouring of love for Michael. But a lot of the cast didn't really get to know Michael until after The Wire was over. Clark Peters, J.D., Dominic Lombardozzi, and Wendell told us a little about how their friendships with Mike developed later on and lasted all the way up until his death. I didn't really meet Michael until after, after, we, after we finished shooting. That's when I really got to know Michael but not during it. And when I did meet Michael or when we would run into each other, it was nothing but love and respect. 
He'd always say, like, Clark, I'm doing so-and-so. Like, you know, if you're in town, come on over. We're doing something with the kids in Brooklyn. Come on down. He came to Newark a lot. And actually, he was the first person I actually took to see my daughter. Because he happened to not be living far away from me at the time. <laughs> and uh, my daughter, I think she was maybe three months at the time. And he was like, yeah, bring her over. My youngest son, who does music, ran into uh, Michael out in California about four or five years ago. Michael remembered him, right? And he was going off to do something. He told me, he said, Michael told me not to do that, not to go to that club, not to go over there. That was more telling to me or more exposing of Michael's character than anything else. I think the second to last time I saw him was in Atlanta. He was staying in a hotel right across from me. I could see him on a balcony. <laughs> so went across the street, hung out with him on the balcony, me, him and Trey. And we was talking uh, about just really about momentum and working and bringing your own ideas to life. That's another thing. Like after like a couple of sentences, Mike would turn into a motivational speaker, regardless of what y'all was talking about. Because he's going to want to motivate you. He's going to want to energize you. He's going to want to amp you up. He's going to want you to go out. So we were sitting there talking about certain jobs that he was doing that he did or didn't like, you know, what he was tired of, you know, what he wanted to do. Every time I met with Michael, there'd be long periods where we wouldn't see each other. And once we connected, it was as if we picked up right where we left off. And he was a person who made you feel like you were the center of the world. Michael became very close with Michael even after The Wire, always stayed in touch with him. Just a fun person to be around. Positive, positive. Always looked at the bright side. And look, at the end of the day, I know everybody got their demons, you know, but, but you know, sometimes you don't oversee that. He taught me, and all the time he would ask me for advice. And I was like, Michael, I told him, thankfully, before he died, man, but you were schooling me. Just because I've been in the game a little longer, you were obviously an actor who had his chops already and you were schooling me. And he gave voice to the voiceless. He was a brilliant, brilliant artist that I miss him dearly. Michael was one of those sparks. Michael was one of those sparks, you know, extinguished way, way, way too early. And when we heard that he, when I heard from Bob Wisdom, I was angry. I was pissed off. I was really angry at, you know, you could have reached out to anybody. You of all people could reach out to anybody and we would have been there for you. Forgetting what I had learned in the corner, that this is an illness. This isn't like a choice thing for a lot of people. It's an illness. The devil is a powerful motherfucker, man. You know, excuse my language, but that, that's how it is. We're going to wind down today with a new voice who I'm excited to introduce. Jermaine Crawford, who played Duquan Weems, better known as Dookie. Changing him. He ain't changed him. He killing him. You might remember Dookie as a kid, but Jermaine is all grown up now, and he spoke beautifully of Michael K. Williams. From his fearful initial impressions of him to the purity of his spirit and how much of a magnet he was on the dance floor. Here's Jermaine. I would have to, <laughs> I would have to say and initially the most intimidating to me was Michael K. Williams. Because of the character and even just his look, 
and I was like 12. So I just... I was, I just, I, I don't know what. I just created something in my head. And, you know, and I didn't want to say the scar specifically, but it, when I was younger, I, I was scared by it. But it did not take long at all for us to kind of connect and really build this really cool camaraderie with each other. He was a dancer, and I was a dancer, like, first. And at the rap party for the fourth season, we did this Michael Jackson routine of Thriller where I was Michael and he was the zombie, and we did the full-out dance routine together. And it's just like, dang, you can kind of <laughs> misjudge people because he was the person that I would think, oh, he doesn't like me. He surely doesn't like me. And he always spoke to me, my parents, and reached out. And, you know, it was always great. But that would probably be the person that for, at first I was kind of like, oh, gosh, I'm scared. Like, he's not going to fuck with me at all. But as soon as, you know, he opens his mouth and cracks a smile, you're like, oh, he's like acting. <laughs> oh, he's a good actor. <laughs> He was really pure. He was really kind. He was really a kind person. He really just meant well. And this is a business ran by ego and insecurity. And I would say, for the most part, Michael really knew who he was. And he was able to share that with people. And he was present. And he would dance. You know what I'm saying? If you were at a party and you were not dancing... Michael would start dancing and everyone would start dancing. It was like electric. It was like bing, 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 bing. He had this energy about him that when he walks in, you feel it. And it's going to go where he wants it to go. Like he was so just a very special person, just very special. I, I don't really know how to pinpoint it. It's just like that star quality, that it factor. He was a talent. He was an extraordinary talent and an extraordinary human being overall. What Mike did as Omar Little will never be forgotten. He made it out of Brooklyn's Vanderveer estates to become one of the finest character actors in the business. There was a light in Mike that burns bright even though he's gone. I felt it, and so did everyone in its glow. And it'll keep burning for people in need of inspiration, guidance, and hope. Now listen, we asked almost everyone who we talked to what made Mike special as an individual? Here's what they had to say. What made Michael special as a human being was his heart. His gentleness, his love for his people. Kindness. His calm strength. Love. Sympathy. There's a certain glee and fearlessness about him. Fun, 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 laughing, joking, storytelling. A huge capacity for joy, a deep well of pain. Just just a really vibrant guy. His ability to share in the kindest of ways. You know, the world is different without him. Rest in peace, Michael Kenneth Williams. Next week on The Wire at 20. Ed Burns <laughs> came to me on the set late in season three and said, uh, so I need to break something to you. You're not going to be part of the detail next year. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is the talk. This is the talk. I I'm done. The bigger the lie, the more they believe was insightful 20 years ago. It is a clarion call today. The scenes weren't always designed to be funny. And that's something that people have always said to me, yo, you watch The Wire, you'd be cracking up. I'm mean, like, what, what are you laughing at, though? The Wire hits different as an adult. The Wire hits, <laughs> oh my God, it's so devastating. Now, if you like what you heard, Tell a friend about us. 
And don't forget that all seasons of The Wire are on HBO Max. The Wire at 20 podcast is a production of HBO and Campside Media. This episode was produced by Cliff Method Mansmith, Shauna Gar, and Natalia Winkleman. Julian Kimball is our story editor. Our associate producer is Lily Houston Smith. Fact checking by Aaliyah Papes. At Campside Media, our executive producer is Josh Dean. Editing and sound design by Rod Sherwood and David Devereaux. Our opening theme song, Way Down in the Hole, performed by the Neville Brothers and written by the great Tom Waits. Our closing song, The Fall, is by Blake Lee. Thanks for listening. See you next time.